Anti-Asian violence is surging across this country. Deadly shootings in Atlanta. This morning, a man attacked and assaulted a 52-year-old Asian-American woman. New York, Los Angeles, and San Francisco have all reported a rise in hate crimes against Asian-Americans. Across the country, over 3,000 reported incidents of hate against the Asian community. But immediately, they're thrown into this new culture. Of course, uh, Kala was a vegetarian. Vaishna was not. Um, but uh, Kala, you know, had a hard time finding, well, not only not knowing the language and not knowing the names of different uh, vegetables and, and spices and, and, or how much things cost and how to use the money. I mean, she knew she was starting from scratch. That's Ronnie Bagai. She's a retired engineer, and she's talking about her grandmother, Kala Bagai. Ronnie has become the caretaker and researcher of her family history. She has combed through old letters and documents to learn about the history of Indian-American immigration through her grandparents. Today, we will hear Ronnie in conversation with Johanna Ogden. Joe is an independent historian who focuses on South Asian history in Oregon, especially the formation of the Gutter Party. Gutter was an Indian expat movement that arose in the U.S. to oppose the British colonial forces in India. These two women talked in June 2021 at the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. As we begin, Joe Ogden sets the scene in the early 1900s. We begin in St. John's, a small port city that has now become a neighborhood of North Portland. Like many parts of the West Coast at the time, St. John's saw a rise in migration from India, part of a larger immigration trend that included Kala and Vaishno, Rani's grandparents. In 1910 in St. John's, there was a a riot. And the context for that is there had been anti-Hindu, which is what people were called at that time, despite being Sikhs and Muslims. And there were actually relatively few Hindus here um, in North America. There had been a series of anti-Asian, broadly defined riots in 1907 up and down the West Coast aimed at Japanese, um, aimed at Indians. When you think about the number of Indians that were in the country at this time, I mean, it's such a small amount. At its peak, it was maybe seven, 8,000 people. So we're not going to turn the economic tide that way, right? India was under British rule, under British colonial rule, and they had been since the 1700s. The Brits made a promise to the Uh, Indians that they could travel anywhere in the world and they were equal participants in the empire. They didn't have the formal status of citizenship, but they were equal members of the empire. And I think that's a really important theme. They go to colonies in Africa, they go to uh, Canada, and a number of them came here to the U.S. The U.S. had its own set of promises, which was, Come one, come all, you're all equal players, blah, 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 right? People traveling under, not just out of economic necessity, which was certainly part of it, but with promises. Oregon kind of started looking good to Indians, and there was work here. Oregon went through a boom that they had never gone through before, 100 years up until recently, growth. Uh, Was it mostly logging? That's, I think, what's behind people ending up in St. John's. St. John's is basically a, a neighborhood in North Portland now. It was its own distinct city in 1910, became incorporated in Portland in 1912, I believe. 
And I want to, I want to emphasize that a lot of these people that perpetrated this violence were laborers, white laborers, and um, but it was not exclusively a laborers' right. And I think that's really important. There were preachers, there were politicians, there were all kinds of just middle class folks also. So, but it was all under the banner of maintaining white countries, and that was a pretty explicit demand. And they felt threatened by these um, uh, influx of uh, Indian laborers. Right. It supposedly jumped off as a bar fight in downtown. They went to, there was a building in the downtown center that they went to because they knew some Indians lived above the business. They went there, rousted people. I think that's where they pushed one guy out of a second-story window. They went down to the shacks, quote-unquote, shacks were called, where people lived close to the mills that were down by the water, you know, rousted all those people, sometimes at gunpoint, went to the mill, tried to throw them out, <clears throat> um, and shoved a, a lot of people onto streetcars and said, don't come back. And um, that was an order the Indians refused. And they came back, and they had gone to the British consulate, which was, there was one here in, in Portland. British consulate got a hold of the district attorney, and within a day or two, the district attorney was walking through the streets of St. John's with orders to arrest. You know, they returned to work. Some of them came back armed. Others did not. The trials went on. But at the end of the trials, almost simultaneous with the last trial, the Indians in St. John, led by a man, one of the people leading it was Sohan Singh Bhakna, another one was Kanchi Ram. They started a study group. Like, why are we facing this? I think March of 1913, and they had a meeting at Kanchi Ram's house just up a couple blocks up from the river in St. John's and had a debate there about, so what do we do now? And one proposition was, well, we've got to bring more students, we've got to bring newspapers, we've got to train people. And the laborers basically said, no, we're done with that. No more. We have to organize to overthrow the Brits. <laughs> and laborers are going to lead this. And within, they had meetings up and down the Columbia River. And in late May, early June, they had a convocation in Astoria and launched the Gutter Party. I thought the Gutter Party started, uh, as one might think, to simply support those in India who wanted independence. You know, a way, a way to fight you know, overseas, too. But I understood just recently that the beginnings of that movement had to do with the recognition that Indians in America would be constantly discriminated against and never seen as equal and never fully accepted because they were British subjects. And as long as they were seen as uh, subservient and inferior, as colonized people, that in America they would never find acceptance. So, so to support India's independence, if one person, if one group is excluded in America— uh, well, then any group can be excluded, and they wanted to fight for that. Exactly. I totally agree. Totally agree. And I think, you know, we were talking about what was the situation for laborers. There was this 
amazingly international labor force in in West Coast of North America. I think it's not typically understood that a lot of the beginnings of the, you know, early nationalist rebellions in China started in San Francisco. Mm. You know, the Mexican Revolution had a lot to do with sort of organizing in California. And and Indians and those that went on to form Gutter were a part of that. The Irish rebellion was going on. You know, this was a time of nationalist rebellion. And so you're absolutely right, both in terms of we'll never be treated as equals as long as we're subjugated people, right? But also that it was a part of a global sort of wind that was blowing and movements that were going on that the, they very much were a part of. I'd like to hear your family story on this, but I, I want to come back at some point and talk about some of the context in America for it, too, and the British context. In the 1890s, my grandfather grew up in Peshawar, which is now Pakistan. According to my grandmother, who even wrote some notes about him, um, she said he was activist from his very early days. He would get into trouble, you know, chased down the streets by the, the British for some sort of form of protest. He would only wear khadi cloth, homespun woven cloth. Um, he would not eat um, refined sugar from, from Britain. Now, he was, I think, concerted, considered an activist from his earliest days. And he was in touch with a man in San Francisco area who was a member of the Gutter Party. His name was Ram Chandra. So Ram Chandra uh, invited him to come to the U.S. and help support the, the effort for India's independence from there. And Vaishno leaped at the idea. His parents had just died a couple years before. He asked, Vaishno asked his brother, to sell his share of the properties. They left properties to the two sons. Uh, basically cash out his inheritance and use that to make a new start in America. That was his motive to come. And my grandmother, though, who's a couple years younger, let's see, um, when they finally came, which was 1915, he was about 24, she was about 22, you know, young couple, three little boys, you know, on a ship, never crossed an ocean or never saw an ocean before. She's never learned to raise, to, to raise children, to care for children, to, you know, know when feeding time is and uh, how to properly, you know, care for them. There were nannies, there were aunts, there were um, mothers-in-law, there were uh, a whole staff of people ready to do that. And that's how things worked there. She decides to go with her husband with three small boys. She has no idea really about how to shop for a family, how to cook for a family. She had to learn all these things when she got there. Uh, they ended up at Angel Island at the immigration station there. And they stay a few days. They are held. And this is one of the first intact Indian families to arrive at that time with, with a wife, with children. And this just was not done or maybe allowed or common, because uh, the immigration did not want Indians and Chinese and others to bring their, their wives and families with them. They, they wanted them to come there to work and go home, <laughs> but not to, not to um, settle. So they questioned Vaishno very closely. Uh, this is the family lore as 
how do you plan to support yourself? And, um, you know, what do you plan to do here? What are your intentions? And Vaishno was very direct back with them. He said, well, I plan to educate my children, send them to school. I plan to start my own business here. And I happen to have $25,000 in gold to get, me, to get us started. <laughs> I believe the immigration official was much more gracious. And the response to that was something along the lines of, Welcome to America. There were a lot of students from India and even uh, China, Japan, who came to study at Berkeley. So they think they felt themselves like, uh, well, all right, this is, you know, at least some international presence here, like we'll feel somewhat at home. They noticed two things that, number one, they discovered Americans didn't bathe every day at that time. Indians did that religiously, you might say. (laughs) But the second thing was uh, very quickly the realization that Kala needed help to get on her feet and how to raise um, the boys. She had one baby, my father, Ram, who was, well, he was just over a year old and still in diapers. You know, how was she to possibly start just running a household when she had no background doing that? There was no Indian family. Uh, the American Americans were rather prejudiced against Indians, so they turned to um, some German families. And they, the children, I believe each of the three lived with a different family for a time. That is so interesting. And I know my father did. He remembers them very well. I have a couple of photos of the father and mother who took care of him. And he said they were very loving. Uh, they treated him like they were, he was their own son. The name was Myers. In fact, he picked up German because he was at an age where <laughs> he picked that up almost really as his first language was German. If they arrived in 1915, that's also really interesting because in a certain sense, the family was going against the migratory tide at that point because in 1914, Germany and England declared war on each other or in July, maybe somewhere in there. And Ram Chandra is running the office in San Francisco for the Gutter Party yes. at this point. So they put out in 1914, after England and Germany declared war on each other, Gutter put out a call saying, this is our opportunity because England is going to be preoccupied with Germany. They're going to need us as troops. If we start a fire in the rear area, they're going to be SOL, right? People are heading back into India to cause trouble everywhere, and your family's coming this way. And they staged a trial in 1918 that was called the German-Hindu Conspiracy Trial, where they put people that on both the German and the Indian side on trial for fomenting rebellion on American soil against a wartime ally, the British. I understand even Kala was living with, well, I don't know if it was German or American, but with a family where she could then learn housekeeping. She could learn how to shop for groceries and, and learn English. The main thing was to learn English. But uh, I know at some point, uh, as Kala mentions in her oral history, she says, well, I got tired of this. You know, my kids are in one place. My husband's another place. I'm going to, it's like, all right, enough of this. And, and I guess she felt ready. Vaishno was uh, 
he started a business. He opened a shop, uh, an import shop, and uh, he was constantly meeting people and making friends. This was this couple was just a, a gregarious social couple, and of course, others, uh, any other. Indian who happened to land in San Francisco immediately looked them up and would come over for dinner and uh, Jaiji would, you know, do a home-cooked vegetarian meal for them, which I'm sure was very much welcomed. <laughs> and so their house was uh, kind of the small nucleus, again, of this really, really small community in San Francisco and Berkeley. So were they in San Francisco or in Berkeley? Uh, both. They moved around. So one of the stories that uh, is now been become well known is that he bought a house in Berkeley. They drive up to the house with a truck full of, you know, their furniture and stuff. And the neighbors who are British, okay, the neighbors who are British see an Indian, like, what the hell is going on? Indian family living next door in a house? Like, no. So what happened was uh, they effectively barred them or blocked them from moving in. Anyway, it was intimidating enough to my grandmother that she simply told Vaishno, uh, no, uh, this looks scary. I'm not moving in. They might hurt my children. If they don't want us, well, I don't want to be here either. <laughs> and then from that point, I don't know exactly what they did. They rented or bought another property. But yeah, it was quite a bit of indignation that, you know, we bought this house, and maybe he even paid cash for it, I don't know, but he, he bought it and every, had every legal right to it and couldn't live there. This story about sort of the reception in the Bay Area is really interesting to me because I think, you know, I've lived in Berkeley and San Francisco too, and I think most people's impression of that city is is the bastion of progressiveness, and which it is in some ways. It was also the center of exclusionary movements, San Francisco and, you know, and California as a whole. They did eventually buy a, uh, a house on Fillmore Street in San Francisco, and this uh, residence had a store below it. And so Vaishno and Kala opened up, it was kind of a general store, and I understand kids would stop by there on the way home from school as they have always done, and would buy you know a piece of candy or or something. He got became naturalized in 1921. He actually received a naturalization certificate uh, listing not only him, but his wife and the three sons. This was his goal, and he had achieved it. And they were, I know, um, all delighted, and I think they thought we're now as American as anyone, right? Um. <laughs> but that, uh, that lasted maybe only a couple years until the Thin Decision in 1923. Immigration wasn't controlled by the feds at that point. It was local jurisdictions. So there's all this stuff that they didn't have control over. So enter Bhagat Singh Thin's case. Oh, oh! I, I just got to stop right, right here, just to say, I was brought up to say thinned, so I just want to point that out. I don't know, you know, what's right, but different. Even Indians, some Indians pronounce it tinned, 
and some say thinned. I say thinned. So I hope if, you know, we're both talking about him, like it doesn't sound too weird. Okay. He had plans to be an American citizen and have a career here. His family talks about this. Everything I've read seems to say he, he supported Indian nationalism, but he had his eyes on naturalizing and, and crafting a life here. So there's all this repression going on, both in India and in the U.S., aimed at Indians. And, you know, he's joined the U.S. military at the tail end of the war. He served for six months up in, at Fort, Fort Lewis in Washington. Never, never saw active duty. Um, was one of the first to wear a turban in the, applied for citizenship because there was an act then that said, if you fought for the U.S. military, it would sort of privilege your application for citizenship. Yeah, as I understand it, the INS um, did not like this, that yeah. he could be granted, and so they appealed. But the Brits have been opposing Indo-American citizenship from almost the moment Indians arrived in the U.S. because they, they, it gave them a measure of protection from being deported to India and jailed or killed, right? Um, and it was a, a political verdict. If Indians could have citizenship in the U.S., what was that saying to all the Indians back home, right? You're actually capable of being a citizen, right? You have high-level British and U.S. authorities opposed to Indo-American citizenship, but you have a process that's unfolding on local ground. So you have a bunch of conflicting rulings around the country. Some say, because the criteria for being a U.S. citizen is you had to be white, explicitly so, unless you were an African-American, and that was designated to emphasize Africa on African-American, that you could trace your heritage, right? But you had to prove you were white. Yes. <laughs> How do you do that? Yes, exactly. And that's a lot of what was being debated in courts all around the country. You know, some were saying, yeah, okay, science is so-called science, mm -hmm. racial science, which is a bunch of hoo-ha. Mm -hmm. They were saying, okay, Indians are Aryans, Aryans are Caucasians, Caucasians are white. That's the math, right? finally got kicked up and said, okay, Supreme Court, you have to come out with a policy on that. So they did, and they ruled against it explicitly on the question of, I don't care if racial science says you're white, we're looking at you, you're not. And the common understanding of whiteness does not include you. Out. Done. Yeah, somewhere in the dim reaches of the past, yes, you may have some connection to being Caucasian. That's a technicality, but... Right. We all know by looking at you, you're not white, even though he thought his blue eyes, his light skin, his military service, uh, all that would, would work for him. But no, nope, uh, the goalposts got moved. Sort of the segue to your family story on this that was so shocking is that it wasn't just ruling that 10 did not qualify. They, they clawed everybody else's citizenship back. Any woman married, even if she was 
met the white criteria, if her husband lost it, she lost hers. Unless she divorced, and if she was a woman of Japanese, Chinese, she permanently lost it. She could not regain it. So it was brutal. The um, courts and the immigration offices were instructed to now nullify the citizenship of all Indians who had been previously naturalized. And this was a number of maybe by that point of, this is throughout the U.S., um, 60, 70 Indians, of which Vaishno was one. I understand they even asked him to return his naturalization certificate, which he refused to do, and I am so happy because I am just so happy to have it. But now he could not get a passport. They refused his passport once they revoked it. My understanding, he applied for a passport. I even have a photo that looks absolutely like a passport photo, but he never did get the passport. And this was quite devastating to him. I understand his lawyer um, suggested, well, you could revert to a British crown passport. And he refused. He said, tell Mr. Barrett, my attorney, I could not for a moment think to take the British passport. Mm -hmm. I can never become a British subject again. He crosses out can, and he writes will. So that tells me where his sympathies lay. So after his citizenship was nullified, um, Vaishno was also having some troubles uh, with his relationship in the gutter party. Vaishno was asked by Ramchandra to uh, go and, yes, go um, work for the Brits in some capacity, but of course we want you, you know, feed them all bad information about the gutter party and what we're doing and, and stuff like that, which uh, Vaishno was happy to do. However, this, uh, there was some conflicts and political uh, issues rising in the gutter party between themselves, and there were a lot of fingers pointed suddenly, and now Vaishno was accused of being a spy for the British spying on the gutter party. He was accused of, you know, supporting the Brits, and for Vaishno, as I understand, that was like the last straw, like to call me that name, a traitor, like for my cause, for uh, India, you know, that was it. This, um, I think, severed a bunch of ties in the, for the party for him. And so I think he felt now kind of truly adrift. He could not have his business. I don't know exactly if he owned property at that point he had to sell, or at least he was not allowed to buy property anymore. So that avenue was closed. Later, like 1925, 1926, is when I believe he decided it was he was going to end his life, and he was going to do it as a protest. And he did that in 1928. But he left behind huh, this very detailed four pages of single-spaced, closely typed, incredibly detailed, nothing is left to chance here, exactly who to go talk to, where the bank accounts are, where the uh, everything is, and... He went and rented a room in San Jose and turned on the gas. So he left behind some letters 
for uh, my grandmother. He left behind a letter for his three children. They're very touching, very sweet. He also left behind one more letter to, it was to the local, I think, San Francisco newspaper saying why he had done this, saying that, in effect, I tried to be everything he wanted me to be. I tried to do everything expected of me as an immigrant. I embraced your culture. I, I, I sent my children to school. I've raised them as Americans. But now you've, you've imprisoned me. I can't you know, own property. I can't go home. I can't stay here and do, do anything for myself and my family. So, so what am I? I'm, he said, he used the metaphor, I'm in a gilded cage. I think it's really interesting to consider your grandfather and Bhagat Singh Ten's time period in terms of citizenship and what changed between it being penalized and prevented and then being sanctioned. And at the time of Ten, the way I read it um, is, I think there were two things going on. As you know, we talked about that both high-level U.S. and British officials opposed Indian, Indo-American citizenship. And from the U.S. side, part of what, you know, the, the great industrialization that happened post-Civil War, it, it was the most massive movement of human beings up until that point that came into North America to work, basically. It was overwhelmingly laborers. But it was people from everywhere. <laughs> and it was threatening to the question of America as a white nation, which is its foundational principle. And I think it's also important to say that who was white was being determined for Germans weren't always considered white. Irish weren't always considered white. Italians, Jews, they had to work all this stuff out about, mm, I don't know about you guys, right? But Tend, I think, in a lot of ways, and the case right before him, Ozawa, represented like, let's finish off like what categories are going to be included here. These people are not going to have power. You can stay and work, but you're not going to own anything. You're not going to have any rights here, right? But the Brits had their interests, and they had been strongly expressing them for a long time about Indo-American citizenship in particular. They, they wanted to just stomp out any possibility of future organizing. They were going to make it so costly. And one of the pieces of that is if Indians could get citizenship, they could reorganize again. And they did, you know. And so they had their own political reasons for opposing this post-World War II. And the U.S. emerges as, you know, the British you know, lost a large part of their empire. The new up-and-coming empire was the U.S., and it coincided with the fact that, you know, India now existed as a country, Pakistan now existed as a country. So I think the geopolitical piece of this is really important about how these things shift.
So growing up, I knew very little about the thin decision. I knew very little about the politics that had shaped my family's life. In fact, for a long time, I think my grandmother didn't talk publicly that her husband had committed suicide because it was kind of a shameful, you know, still taboo. By that time in 1948, let's see, um, uh, well, there was the Loose Seller Act that was passed, and Kala was finally able to apply for and get her citizenship, uh, and she decided to move down to Los Angeles. Her dream was to buy a piece of property where, hopefully, all three of her sons and their families could live with her. And the third uh, son, my father, Ram, also moves in with his new wife, from Cleveland, Ohio, a nice, uh, you know, American white girl, Leona Bell. <laughs> my uh, father applied, oh, I think as soon as he was able to, and so did my grandmother. They could apply for their citizenship. Uh, my mother married my dad before he was a citizen, but I think he had applied. So um, her citizenship well could have been threatened, but it, it yeah. worked out. But what is uh, very... Uh, ironic about all of this is that my parents had become very close friends with Dr. Thind and his wife Vivian in Los Angeles. They had at some point moved there, I don't know exactly when. You know, given that this is in the 40s again, and given again that the community was so small of Indians, everyone knew each other. The Thinds were frequent guests at our home and I thought really nothing of it other than he, I was a little scared of Dr. Thind because he looked like no one else I'd ever met. Most Indians who I knew in the community at that time, uh, they did not wear turbans. So he had a turban, he had a very long white beard, he had these piercing light blue eyes, and he was very kind and friendly to me, and I know he, he tried to be warm, but I, as a small child, I just remember being kind of terrified and shy in front of him uh, because he looked like, you know, in my Grimm's fairy tales, like every kind of, you know, evil wizard or something that was pictured, and I just could not warm up to him. But he, nonetheless, he was a, a dear friend of our, our, our families, and uh, uh, he even performed a blessing ceremony where he would be my godfather. I don't recall the that it being discussed that it was the thin decision that started the chain of events that caused my grandfather to lose his, lose his citizenship and then end his life. I had no idea of that growing up, that this man had, in, had any relation to that series of events. Kala was recently honored in California as a pioneer of Indian-American immigration. Ronnie says that it gives her a lot of satisfaction to realize that someone who was rejected from a place has become a symbol for hope, and that new immigrants to the area might see her name and know that they are welcome. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. Many thanks to Ronnie Bagai and Johanna Ogden for their time and wisdom and to the Japanese American Museum of Oregon for allowing us to record there. This episode is part of our series, I Am an American, which discusses the roots of anti-Asian violence. 
The series was made possible by a generous contribution from Anne Nato Campbell. For more episodes in the series, please visit our website. This episode was produced by me, Caitlin Dwyer. I did the audio editing, assisted by Greg Palmer. Music was composed by Corey Larkin, and our executive producer is the loquacious Sankar Raman. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at prp.fm or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.